Today's TribCast is brought to you by Lowy Law Firm. Adam Lowy created his firm with a bold new vision. Explore how they help injured Texans at LoweyLawFirm.com. And Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. Find out more at RaiseYourHandTexas.org. And welcome to the May 20th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by public education reporter Aliyah Swaby. Hello. Managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. And executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. I had I had no little quippy thing to say about Matthew this time. I Were shaved. What? <laughs> you he did shaved shave. and he blurred his closet, so we can't he look did. at the stuff on the shelves anymore. <laughs> You're just very back to normal now. It's, it's I don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot what a, my face looked like. Yeah, we should do a Room Raider <laughs> segment on TribCast. Have you been doing that? <laughs> I think Matthew, I'm really, I would really want them to look at Matthew's blurred out closet. It would be great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to the Footloose edition of the TribCast. This week, we continued our march toward even more reopenings in the state, including bars, though dancing is discouraged, zoos, and bowling alleys. Matthew, you want to give us kind of a rundown of the newest openings? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think by now, the list of things that are not open is shorter than the things that are open. You know, basically... Most of what you can come up with, aside from theaters and various other, you know, high culture things, you know, you can go to the rodeo in Texas now, but you can't go see a play. You're saying um, rodeo is not high culture? Is that what you sound <laughs> <Yes>. so offended? <laughs> you know, I just, I really wanted to go to the theater, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> He's wearing an AM t shirt. You're like, wow. Wow. What are you trying to okay. suggest here? That was a reference to agriculture and rodeos, not anything else. <laughs> Sorry, go on, go on. All right, let's, let's regroup here. Okay, so basically, Abbott, you know, his most recent uh, announcement of the second wave of reopenings happened on Monday. Uh, top line items, uh, child care facilities open immediately. Bars can open Friday um, with 25% capacity, although, as Alexa has pointed out, dancing is discouraged. Um, sporting events can return at the end of the month, um, with no fans. Although, you know, if we want to get into that, we can, you know, sporting events are a little bit dependent on other states as well. Um, other things on the list, bowling alleys, bingo halls, skating rinks, rodeos, zoos, and aquariums. Um, restaurants can operate at 50% now. Uh, you know, like I said, it's, uh, a lot of stuff is open now. A lot of people can kind of return to things. The question, or one of the questions at least is, will they, you know, and, and does it matter that restaurants are 50% if more than 50% of people don't want to be going to restaurants now? Um, among the many things that kind of remain to be seen, uh, moving forward here. It's interesting that none of these apply to outdoor. So if you've got outdoor seating at a restaurant, you're supposed to keep people socially distanced, but it doesn't apply to the 25% rule or the 50% rule. Same thing's true of bars. If you've got an outdoor space, um, you know, as long as you don't have more than 25% of the indoor capacity indoors, you can do whatever you want outside as long as, you know, people are presumably 
if they're dancing, they're dancing six feet apart. <laughs> no, it's I, discouraged. It didn't say anything about distance. It's dancing alone, really you know. <laughs> yeah. Don't do it. Just don't do it. I mean, I just want dancing to Dancing has been encouraged in my, discouraged for in my household for a long time. I just <laughs> You're specifically <laughs> dancing, Matthew. Yeah, just me. Everyone else can dance, just me. <laughs> I mean, I just want to make clear that I'm not really leaving my house at all, but I especially would not leave to go to a bowling alley where you would, like, trade bowling balls with people. I mean, how does this... <laughs> How did you get, how did you get coronavirus? Well, a seven pound bowling ball. Yeah. And the shoes. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you go into a bowling alley and you're using other people's stuff. You know, like, are they going to be washing shoes after everyone touches the shoelaces and ties them up? I don't I don't know if that's a specific requirement in the executive order. Right. You know, one of the things that has come up, you know, seriously, is uh, public bathrooms. And, you know, whether you're talking about people going back to work or going to places like bowling alleys and bars and restaurants and things is, you know, one of the places where a lot of people go through um, are the restrooms. Um, and, you know, one of the things we're going to have to people are going to have to solve as they get back together is, you know, how do they keep those places safe? I think, you know, the biggest headline from, from Monday's announcement, though, was childcare. you know, because if, if the goal is to really reopen the economy, the, you know, aside from the public health fears, which Abbott can't really do much about, um, the biggest obstacle is childcare, right? If the schools are closed, if the daycare facilities are closed, if there's nowhere to put your kid, you're not going back to work. Um, and so this happens. It's obviously a risk, though. I mean, one of the reasons you see it kind of on the back end of things is because, as I can attest, you know, kids aren't very careful about germs and they're, you know, they're they're not maintaining social distancing. And, uh, they're not taking the no dancing suggestion seriously. I think like, the, you know, so. You know, I think everyone, parents everywhere are kind of, you know, who have the resources, who have the ability to send their kids back to daycare are now having to kind of ask themselves, do they feel comfortable doing this, um, both just out of a, uh, you know, wanting to keep their own families safe, but also kind of out of a, you know, social responsibility. Is this something they feel comfortable doing? And I think, you know, the answer, how people kind of collectively answer those questions will have a lot of influence on A, how much the economy really comes back, and B, how much at risk we are of a kind of a second wave of the virus at this point. Yeah, definitely. And I think that if you're a parent who's not in that category of parents who, you know, has more options, if you're a parent who, like, needs to be working, um, you know, doesn't qualify for unemployment for any reason, um, and you need to have childcare for your young kids who can't watch each other. Um, it's been a roller coaster over the last few months to figure out whether you're actually able to like legally procure childcare for your kid and safely procure it. Like at first, childcare centers were allowed to be open when Abbott had closed other businesses in March, um, but a lot of them were closing. I think it, it started at 14%, um, and then since then it's risen to 37% of licensed facilities. So the safe facilities that you know have in some way been vetted um, were closed. And so those people just didn't have anywhere to go. And then uh, they were closed to anyone but kids of essential workers. And now they're allowed to be open, but some of them aren't coming back because it's, you know, they, they don't have a promise of enough people to 
um, actually pay their workers, actually know that they, they can keep their doors open without hemorrhaging money. Yeah, I think that the destabilizing nature of all this for parents who have children who need to find childcare to return to work, you know, we, you mentioned people who haven't, who may not qualify for unemployment, but we also know that the system has been backlogged, right? That there are people who maybe haven't even been able to get through the process. And now things are reopening, their jobs might be, you know, calling them back and they have to figure this out now. But I I also think there's this like mismatch between these openings and what parents who work and need childcare can access. Because just, you know, Abbott has said time and time again, these reopenings are not a mandate. And so it's possible that there are places that will not reopen, that there are parents who still don't have a job. And at the same time, Aaliyah, you've been reporting about the Texas Workforce Commission's vote to basically scale back some of the payments that they were making for lowing payment for low income parents to tap into these services. But it's possible people could end up having to start repaying that before their jobs are actually available to them, right? Yeah, the timelines are just off. Like if you're a business, the Abbott's order doesn't mean you immediately open. It probably means you figure out what it takes to actually reopen over the course of a couple of weeks. If you're a parent who wants to send your kid back and it hasn't reopened yet, and then the state says you can't have the subsidies that we were giving you, you know, because you you can't, um, you know, you, you're supposed to be able to work now that the economy is open, but nothing in your life is actually telling you that anything is different beyond the governor making this announcement. That means nothing for you. Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of kind of a broader situation that's going on in the state right now, which was that when this virus came and society essentially shut down, except for, you know, some very essential services, the state was kind of forced to put in place this kind of very temporary safety net, you know, which had its own holes in its, of right, in its own right, but was kind of far beyond what the safety net usually is in this state and what, you know, frankly, far beyond what the, the, the leadership of this state is comfortable with. You know, it's uh, a lot of kind of like social programs that, you know, cost a lot of money and aren't particularly popular among a segment of the Texas electorate. Um, and now what we're seeing is as we kind of unwind the, the economy um, as much as we can, we're seeing that safety net kind of be dismantled a little bit. And it's, it's the child care subsidies, it's unemployment insurance, it's um, a whole bunch of different other little things. And it's really tough because as we've already discussed, just because you're lifting these restrictions doesn't mean kind of the world is returning back to normal. And so now what you're getting are a bunch of people who, you know, really kind of need that safety net right now are now kind of having to go to figure out how they're going to make their life work with the kind of standard Texas normal time safety net or, or at least something that's closer to that than, than what we had, you know, a month or two ago. Um, I mean, it's a huge challenge and it's going to have, you know, really big economic ramifications for, for a lot of people. It's a window some, in some ways into the interconnectedness of things. I mean, I don't think a lot of people think about if you go to the grocery store or you, you know, go out shopping or something that in some way what you're doing is tied to the workers' ability to get care for their children, whether it's in childcare or public schools or all of these kinds of things. 
and it's hard to put all these pieces back together uh, as the state's finding out. So it's um, it's rough and sloppy and um, costs a lot of money. Yeah, I think the safety net part of this is is what's most what most has come into question because we have not been a state that traditionally casts a pretty wide net on this. And you've seen it even, you know, and all these things do intersect, right? Like you have eviction proceedings resuming this week, even though Abbott's reopenings, including childcare facilities for non-essential workers, those don't go into effect until later this week, but eviction proceedings started before that. And so if you're a parent who's been out of work and you say your job does become available again because your restaurant reopens or the bowling alley reopens, but your childcare facility hasn't reopened, you're still stuck in this limbo. And it's like the, we talked about this a little bit last week, but you know, usually when lawmakers or elected officials make these decisions, the effect of them is sometimes delayed, right? Like laws don't always go into effect immediately. They take three months. You often don't hear about it until the interim and it's not fixed until the next legislative session. But we, all of these things are destabilizing life for people whose lives were already destabilized by the pandemic. And now we're just seeing it in real time. Well, and I'm, I'm interested to see what the political impact of this, because, you know, a lot of the arguments for, uh, against, you know, very strong, very kind of generous social safety net structures is this idea that, like, it disincentivizes hard work or, you know, um, uh, it's it's kind of allowing people to live in kind of like a nanny state situation. You know, and we can have conversations about whether that's, you know, a valid argument uh, in normal times. But in this time, it really, I mean, this is so much of this is out of people's control, right? Like their jobs were like taken from them. You know, their, their like livelihood was kind of taken out from under them, you know, due to nothing having to do with their making whatsoever. And, you know, this idea, you know, I'll be interested to see kind of what the political effects of this, the, whether there is any kind of uh, blowback for, for these things kind of starting to be kind of unwound. Um, because it's, it's this idea of like, you know, these, th these programs are for other people, not for me, or these, I, these programs are for people who don't deserve this kind of help. You know, that, that, that's a harder argument to make these days um, with given the, everything that's going on. So the reopenings are happening with this backdrop of missed benchmarks. You know, the Texas continues to miss these markers set up by the White House and really Abbott himself. His framework for reopening the economy established a, quote, goal to reach 30,000 tests per day. But in the two weeks since his first set of reopenings, the state only averaged 20,700 tests per day. He also laid out this goal for contact tracing, you know, planning for this workforce of up to 4,000 people by May 11th. Four days after that date, when our colleagues wrote about this, we were only halfway toward that goal. And so, you know, the experts, like the public health folks and the doctors, have said widespread testing and contact tracing is key to doing this safely. But it seems like we're we've reached a point where we're, we seem to be okay doing this in a way that misses those marks, seemingly as long as ho hospital capacity is okay. Uh, do I have that right? Yeah, the governor has said that he's got unanimous uh, support for his change in position from his medical advisors. But you're right. I mean, he's not hitting the marks that he himself set out, and it does make you wonder. You know, as you go into the next two or three weeks. 
how this plays out. I mean, it's it's the giant question mark here is, you know, if you open things up in this way without hitting the marks that you went through and that he set out, um, is it safe? You know, I think one of the, the quotes from Abbott's press conference on Monday was that he said the goal of Texas, you know, the, the government's goal right now is to coexist with COVID-19 as safely as possible. And, you know, like in a past TripCast, we kind of joked about the idea of like the the Abbott doctrine and, you know, like what is his like approach to this? That's only and something you. I know. I'm, it'll, I'm trying to make it stick. I'm trying to make it stick. But, <laughs> but like it, his, the strategy, I think he, you know, is pretty clear right now. The that what he he's operating with the understanding that the virus is going to make its way through Texas if there's not a vaccine. You know, it's going to if we completely keep things shut down, it'll move slowly. If we open things up, it'll move a little bit more quickly. And so what he seems to be doing is open things up as much as he can while making sure that Texas has the resources for people who are going to inevitably get sick. And that means some of the numbers that people are looking at, you know, whether it's confirmed case numbers or, or really even death totals, like that's not really what his benchmark seems to be. His benchmark is hospital capacity. Like, do we have the medical resources to take care of these people? You know, you even heard that from him on Monday when he mentioned El Paso, where he talked about, you know, that hospital capacity up there is something that I'm worried about. And El Paso and Amarillo were the two places where he kind of slowed the rollout of these things. Um, so, you know, he seems to be saying we're going to broadly kind of open things up. We're keeping an eye on hospital capacity, keeping sure we're making sure these things are being contained to the extent that it doesn't get out of control. And then when a hotspot emerges, like it's, if it's in Amarillo or if it's El Paso, we'll kind of flood that zone with testing and kind of other resources and maybe even consider pulling back some of the openings that we've done. But it's going to be a surgical approach. It's going to be you know, the idea that there's a bunch of positive tests in Amarillo isn't going to keep him from opening things up in Houston or, or Dallas or places where the, you're not seeing that big increase. And so, you know, I think the Democrats would argue that this is, you know, you're putting lives at, at risk and, you know, uh, and things like that. But it's the, it's a lot of it is like a different approach, like just different theories about how this should be managed. But I think that's what makes it especially hard for people who are just watching the numbers, you know, as as we have access to the the numbers the same way that, that people do. Maybe other people aren't watching them as closely as we are or in the same way. But I think businesses are having to decide, OK, how much do we actually believe these metrics before they're deciding whether to reopen instead of it being something that's that's more uh, streamlined than that? You know, like no one wants to be in that hotspot, whatever Abbott's surgical approach is, no one wants to be the childcare center or the restaurant who is in that hotspot, who has gotten a bunch of people sick, you know, and then is responsible for the business or the, the economy having to reclose in their area. I think that if you're someone watching the governor make these decisions, there's more risk out there for you. And you have to make your decisions based on, you know, just your own gut feeling in part. <laughs> I think that that's really, that sounds really challenging. And and we come back to the idea of, you know, it thinking about hospital capacity in terms of like beds and ventilators is very different to the way the virus plays out when it affects different people, right? Like we know that the complications that come from the virus affect 
people of color differently than they affect white people. And like, you know, if you think about, if you think about this less as like geography based and more so as industry or sector, right? Like let's talk about sporting events. Like if you are playing this balancing act between the economy and people's livelihoods and the spread of the virus in people's lives, and you're trying to figure out like, where does the sporting event fit into that kind of balance game? You, you can't just think about like the sporting event, right? You have to think about like the gap between say like the player or the owner of a team or the coach of a team and the janitor who has to clean the locker after they're done and the exposure that they are facing and the fact that like if one is infected it could end differently for that person and it's so it's we think about this a lot as like numbers and hospital capacity and industry but at the end of the day even if we accept that we're going to cohabitate with this virus we can't do that without accepting that it's not going to affect everyone equally. And I know we made that point last week, but I just think it's important to keep in mind in all of these reopenings. All right. Well, before we run out of time and I'm late to get to the mid-roll, we've got two more sponsors we've got to go to. WGU Texas. Upskill, reskill. Earn a four-year degree faster. Accelerated, accredited online degrees in business, IT, healthcare, and education. Visit Texas wgu.edu slash admissions. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. So for those keeping track at home, the rules or at least the interpretations around who can vote by mail during the pandemic have changed at least four times in the last week. Yesterday, federal district judge Fred Beery penned a colorful ruling that opened up voting by mail to everyone in the state. Uh, One of the things he found was that the state's rules for age on who, who can qualify to vote by mail based on age were unconstitutional during the pandemic because voters under 65 were operating under different rules than those 65 and older. Um, And I want to start by asking Ross what your favorite line from this ruling was. I have it it right here. I knew you would. I knew you'd (laughs) have it. I didn't even tell him I was going to ask him. (laughs) This is one of those things I wish I'd written. We the people get just about the government and political leaders we deserve, but deserve to have a safe and unfettered vote to say what we get. Um, It's pretty good. He went on and on in that opinion. It was, you know, it's a 74-page document, but the opinion itself is really about a dozen pages. And, you know, he was really clear. He just basically said, look, you have a right to vote. It ought to be safe. It's unsafe out there. And until it's safe, you should be able to vote by mail. It was pretty clearly laid out. And I think the I would be surprised if the Fifth U.S. Court of Appeals doesn't overturn him by the end of the week. I, I, mean, I think, we're, you know, we're headed for, I guess, the Supreme Court of Texas is handling a different case, you know, shortly after we taped this and then uh, the federal case. And, you know, at some point, I guess they collide and explode in the air and we find out how we're voting in the July runoffs because that's the next election that's up. I mean, I think it's fully possible that this will change by the end of today. You know, the attorney general has already appealed to the circuit. He's asked them to block the ruling today. So that could come, you know, while we're watching the Texas Supreme Court take up a different part of this fight. Just for the record, the line that I really liked because I love sort of literary fun like this was citizens should have the option to choose voting by letter carrier versus voting with disease carriers. Just a fun little play of words. Um, 
But I, I think more broadly, you know, as, as we've been watching this, yes, I think without a doubt, this is going to end up before the Supreme Court. In fact, when the Democrats filed this lawsuit, they said, you know, we saw what the Supreme Court did in Wisconsin. We don't want to leave it up to the last minute. We're getting into the pipeline quickly. And it has, but this lawsuit that was kind of a sleeper lawsuit has taken on this bigger role as you've had these sort of conflicting decisions on the state side of these courts. And I just think, you know, we're all, this is all going to end up at the U.S. Supreme Court in the in-between voters have no idea what the rules are, whether they can apply for a vote by mail now and what that means for later. The Supreme Court arguments that we're hearing today are even more confusing because when you apply for a ballot by mail, you just hit, you just check a box that says disability. You don't write COVID-19, lack of immunity for COVID-19 or, you know, like heart failure. You just check the one disability box. And so there's no actual way to distinguish this. And so I, you know, when you're thinking about these fights, at the end of the day, it's kind of, the, the politics of it are so weird and so disjointed from like the actual mechanics of voting by mail and how election officials kind of come back and parse through those because you could check dis- you could submit an application now and check disability and there's no way for them to know and they have no authority to question what that disability is. Can they come back on on fraud on that? I mean, if somebody checks a box and at the time that they vote or that they've applied for that ballot, the courts have settled on current law um, and they come back and say, well, you said you were disabled and you're not disabled. Well, I'm afraid of the coronavirus. Well, we already said in court that that's not a deal. So this is voter fraud. I mean, I think that's the question. That's one of the questions, but it's still difficult to parse through because the way this works is I, Alexa Uda, the voter, dis- I interpret what a disability means to me. It's not defined in the election code beyond an illness or physical condition that could be harmed by going to the polls. And no one has any authority to question that. And so, you know, I think you're hearing from Republicans similar concerns about voter fraud, but in the end, the way the statute is written it's up to the voter to decide and election officials are being told by the secretary of state, you can't actually police this. You have no authority to do so. It's on the voter. Can you walk us through the process here? You send an application to vote by mail to the County and then the County approves it and sends you a ballot. Is that how this works? Yeah, you fill out an application, it includes your name, your address, where you want your ballot to be mailed, and then they ask you why you're requesting it. And so you then you check a box, 65 or older, or I'm going to be out of the county during the election period, or I have a disability. And then when the election administrator receives that, as long as they as long as you are eligible in terms, you know, you're registered to vote, you're actually in the county, you're not on the suspense list for whatever reason, though you could still vote um they, all they can do is verify that on its face and then send you a ballot. There, there's no power to question why someone checked disability. And then, okay, so here's, here's my question. If you, so right now the rule under this ruling is that you can vote by mail due to the coronavirus, um, you know, is, so are the counties right now approving applications they've received and sending them out. I mean, you know, like you said, it could change as quickly as today. We're going through these kind of periods where, okay, it's allowed. 
now, oh no, that's been overturned. Now it's not allowed and things like that. I mean, if I, am I going to get approved today, get my ballot and then like have to send it back? Or once you get your ballot, are you allowed to submit it by mail? I mean, do we know how all this, just like how the logistics of all this works? You are sharing the conundrum that election officials across the state are in, in many ways. But at the end of the day, if they receive an application that has disability checked, they have to process it. There's no way for them to know if you are checking it because you don't have immunity or because you have another physical condition. There, there's no way. And so th- that's what makes all of this debating so strange is that you are there are movements in other states, including those led by Republicans, to expand voting by mail on, you know, the, the states themselves are taking the initiative to do it. And here you have this fight over the interpretation of a statute that is, you know, on its face, pretty vague, that's leading to all of these questions about who qualifies when in reality, we, you know, an election official can't question the qualification of someone based on a disability. And so, I mean, it's a hot mess. Let me ask a really quick question. Can they process that many mail applications? I mean, if, if everybody says, heck with it, I'm going to get a mail application and then I'm going to vote by mail. Uh, That's a processing disaster, isn't it? Well, I think that's the other thing that election admins have been thinking about for weeks now, is that if there is going to be an increase in voting by mail, which some of them are expecting regardless of the litigation, just because people who are normally eligible that might not use it will now, there, there are some counties where they don't have enough scanners to even count these machines. Much, And there are people that, you know, there are like two-person election departments that have to go through these applications and make sure the ballots go out. And so I think there are some real logistical questions that election officials are having to, you know, somehow navigate without any clarity, while also, by the way, now you have to plan for two weeks of early voting, even though you were only thinking of one week. Good luck finding enough polling poll workers or masks to protect those poll workers. Yeah, are we just assuming that this is going to, like, tank the turnout, at least for the runoff? I mean, runoffs already <laughs> have very low turnout. Are we expecting just, like, the most abysmal <laughs> numbers for that? I mean, I think that's, that's something that's going to be really interesting to watch for because, you know, you could, uh, you know, we're talking about Texas voters and turnout, whether intentional, you know, whether a voter's decision or a barrier a voter can't overcome to vote, turnout is incredibly low. We're also like at a time when a lot of people are at home and there's, you know, I do wonder if there's going to be this sort of response of, well, no, now I'm especially going to vote. And these questions about how to vote are up there in ways they aren't normally before a primary runoff election. So, I mean, I think, I think we don't know. I think there are a lot of questions about what turnout will look like. I think there's going to be a lot of issues that will come up on the ground. And, you know, we're just going to keep barreling toward November with a lot of those things, you know, those things will probably not be resolved as election officials turn to November, which they normally would have been preparing for this summer. Well, the good news is that Texas has a really great track record of local and state officials cooperating and handling logistical <laughs> problems without any issues whatsoever. So it'll all be fine. All right. Well, on that note, 
<laughs> that is all the time we have for today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, the Lowy Law Firm, Raise Your Hand Texas, WGU Texas, and Methodist Healthcare Ministries. On behalf of Aaliyah, Matthew, and Ross, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. <laughs>